Hello and welcome to Backlisted, a brand new podcast that gives old books a second chance. I'm John Mitchinson, and he's Andy Miller. We're readers, writers, and editors of books. We are the Levis and Butthead of the book world, but which is which, only you can decide. We're coming to you from the kitchen table of Unbound, the website where readers and writers meet to create great books. We're joined today by Lissa Evans, the acclaimed novelist and producer of Father Ted, and Matthew Clayton, the rather less acclaimed writer <laughs> and producer of Tenuous Literary Links, as you'll discover later. Andy, what have you been reading? This week? Or generally? Andy, what have you been reading this week? <laughs> uh, I've read several books this week. The first book that I finished this week was the uh, 900 pages of Life and Fate, by Vasily Grossman, a uh, novel I've been meaning to read for 20 years, ever since you, John Mitchinson, gave me a copy. It's a bulging, <laughs> rippling Russian masterpiece, isn't it? It takes you high, it takes you low, it takes you from all angles. It's the um, <laughs> it's an entirely inappropriate subject for light-heartedness, it, John, it, if you it, don't mind me saying. It's true. It is, it is a, an amazing... Uh, it's an amazing novel, though, isn't it? Proper it's one absolutely wonderful book. It is a, quite consciously, I think, modelled on War and Peace and attempts to tell you the story of Stalingrad, uh, the siege of Stalingrad in the Second World War, but also, by the extension, the rise of Stalin prior to the Second World War, through the Second World War and out the other side, by giving you a massive cast of characters, all of whom have ludicrously long Russian names, throwing down about 50 of them in the first 30 pages and then begging you to keep up. But if you stick with it, as is often the case with these long books, it really, really delivers. I have to say about the 500-page Mark, I, I found it incredibly moving. This is your thesis, though. This is your, uh, your, you know, you're a reading dangerously, read yourself fitter thesis, that these big books, if you can only just stick at it, you'll actually end up not only having a great experience, but become a better person. Um, yes. In a nutshell, yes. I don't think all books are there to entertain you all the way through. And I tend to think that a book will give you back what you put into it a lot of the time. Not all the time. But certainly I found with Life and Fate that once you'd done the groundwork and once you were prepared to let the author do some work on your behalf, the payback was, was totally worth it. Brilliant book. Excellent. Well, I was reading that. What were you reading? Uh, well, I was reading this, Hate Mail by <laughs> Mr Bingo. And it's brilliant because it's really quick to read because it's basically just a book of postcards. Oh, that's nice. And the premise of the postcards is that he um, asked people to pay him to send them rude, abusive postcards. And it is, <laughs> I have to say, one of the funniest things I've ever read. And better than that, as you can see, dear Matt, you are a loser and have a fat back. Love Mr. <laughs> or the one I particularly love is there's a circle with Ronald McDonald in one side and another circle with Hitler's face in another. And where they intersect like a Venn diagram, it just says you. <laughs> Uh, it's just really, really, he's a brilliant illustrator. You were a effing ugly baby, dear Lily. You were, and then a really, really ugly baby face. I uh, must say uh, to the listeners, it is beautifully a designed book uh, with a grey cover, the format of which uh, reminds me strongly of Martin Parr's brilliant, boring, boring postcards. It, it, it has got that. Dear Jude, 
you have a tiny brain. And there's a great picture of it. Anyway, the point is... Do you want to just read out? I'll read out Life and Fate. You can read that out, yeah. <laughs> well, it is, a, it is a fat book, like Life and Fate. It, it is, it is. But I think, and beautifully produced, um, but it is obviously meant for the smallest room in the house. But the reason I, I really love it, it was it, Mr Bingo put a Kickstarter campaign out for this book and raised massive amount, about £140,000, I think. Mm. And I, I was just amused. I thought you would be amused too by... The things that uh, you could pay for. I mean, it was basically you paid fifty pounds to get an abusive postcard. Um, I, I liked it. He said that the book, the beautiful book that we see in front of us, would be equally at home next to your toilet or on display in a twatty chin-stroking art gallery, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I think has a, a ring of truth about it. But he said there are other things you could be, you could be told to f off on the internet for eighteen pounds, or you could get the opportunity to get shit-faced on a train with Mister Bingo for one hundred and fifty pounds. <laughs> he says I really like drinking on twerk trains. I'll be splitting them into groups of five at a time, so if I end up filling all 20 places i'll lay them all out and organize them into groups that i think might work with each other a bit like that bit on the x factor when the judges put ultimate boy and girl bands together for drifting entrance at the top end you can enjoy a pint with mr bingo in five years time for 200 pounds uh, anyway i like it. his final purpose it's, it's reinforced the notion that people really like paying good money to be told to fuck off <laughs> it also restores my faith in humanity he says People are funnier and sillier than I thought. Mr. Bingo, hate mail. How much did he have to raise to make the book happen? He only had to raise about 30,000, so he raised more than 100,000 more. That's an amazing thing. 100,000 pounds extra because people love being told to go and stick their heads up their backside. My tenuous fact on this is that... What I think is amazing about it is, firstly, the fuck octopus, which is on the cover, um, which you can't see, but I urge you to go onto the internet and look at it. It's an octopus octopus flicking the V's eight times. And it's beautifully embossed on this beautiful grey. It's a lovely book, isn't it? So that's kind of fact one. Fact two (laughs) is that um, he raised this incredible amount of money from a relatively small amount of people, so it's from 3,500 people. If he'd sold three and a half thousand copies in the shops, he would have maybe made three and a half grand. By doing it via Kickstarter, he's made like 80 grand. I think that's really and, interesting. And how does he feel? Function. I have friends who've kickstarted books and they slightly, they delight themselves by thinking of unlikely um, targets or challenges t- that people then pay for that they, they, he then has to go through with. How does he feel about drinking on trains? Do we said, know? Well, I think he said he loves drinking on trains, so he was something oh, he does okay. anyway. So he, but he's only doing what he would do normally. And, and he loves telling people to fuck off as well. So yeah. well, he's monetarised one dream <laughs> after another, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah. <laughs> Superb. He has. I particularly like this, dear Rob. No Instagram filters will save your face. Love, Mister. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but enough of this, Andy. What, what else have you got in your pile of uh, masterpieces? Well, I've also been reading. Uh, I've been reading uh, simultaneously um, both uh, "Naked Lunch" by William Burroughs and "Love in a Cold Climate" by Nancy Mitford. And what I've been trying to do Gosh, almost identical. So it must be. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was, <laughs> it must be difficult I, I, to distinguish. It's all becoming one book: the exploits of Lord Mugwump. Um, but um, I was wondering whether you um, read two books on the go. Always. Can't possibly read one. And I alternate all the time. I find it... I read different books at different times of day. I mean, I think, you know, there's a morning book, usually something a little bit about nature just gets me into the mm. day. But if I'm reading serious fiction, I have to. that has to be kind of... 
you know, I need a coffee. I need, I need to be, yeah, needs to be the middle of the day. Or, or what I find is the last thing at night where I get, you know, I like to read things that keep me awake. See, I much prefer not to. I much prefer just to to stick to one book. Yeah. And, um, really it was just the, my favorite time to read in the day is uh, is five o'clock or six o'clock in the morning before the world has woken up and wants stuff from me. And I can just concentrate. But I was finding the experience of reading Naked Lunch at five o'clock in the morning a bit of a downer. So, <laughs> so I decided to tag team with Nancy Mitford. I was trying to think who would be more appealed by that by that coupling, <laughs> Mitford or Burroughs. Oh, I think Mitford was pretty unshockable. I think Burroughs would have I think found it. Burroughs would be horrified. Yeah, horrified, Absolutely yes. horrified, yeah. Uh, it's quite... It's, have quite, you read both those books? I have not read both of them. Have you read I, either of them? Uh, I've not read either of them. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations! I uh, no, I, you know, I, there's a, there are huge gaps in my in my my reading. That's the whole point about what we're trying to do with this. One, one is a, com- a one is have... a comedy of society manners, yeah, and the other is the Nancy Mitford. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <ka-ching. laughs> yeah. I think what we're trying to do is to promote generally the fact that where a reading is good for you, but b don't tell lies about what you haven't read. So I think that's yeah. the, that's the that is the absolute. We will never come in here and talk knowledgeably about books that we've never read so um that, that's the that's the uh backlisted promise um <laughs> the seal the seal do you want to hear about my my next book that i've been reading yes this is completely different this is this is called a Cotswold village and uh, it was written in it was published in 1900s it's by j arthur gibbs and it's a rather sad story because he it's a really lovely book, but he died at the age of 31, literally just before the book was published. So it was published posthumously, and it's it's rather sweet. He's got his wife in here, who's who, who I think it's his wife or his sister, just saying, you know, what a lovely man he was. And um, uh, what did he say? She said something really nice about him, which I now can't find. Yes, he had a deep love for things that are lovely, pure, and of good report. But the the best thing about it, the best thing about it is there's a guy in it who is complete, the hero of the book, who is a gamekeeper called... Tom Peregrine, who taught, he, he translates all his talk and very dark, you know, in the way they write dialogue, this is rather like the book we're coming on to talk to in a minute. Dialogue is quite difficult to put mm. into prose, but he does it brilliantly. And by the end of it, Tom Peregrine's become this hero. And not only is he a hero, he, um, there's a very funny story where he goes in, he's told to get some oxtail soup in town, and he comes back with some oxalic soap. And uh, his wife <laughs> insists on making it into a soup. And when he says it tastes, ah, this don't taste right, my love, my lover, uh, <laughs> she makes him eat it all because, A, she said, you know, anything that's that's a soup has got to be good for you. And, B, they'd already spent the money on it. But, um, Does there, he die? He doesn't die. Because that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's what he's actually. What's so he rhubarb The book is, is, is this great thing. Tom Peregrine, here we go. Uh, this is only, Tom Peregrine suddenly appears out of a hedge where he'd been watching the antics of the cubs at the mouth of the fox earth. He's grown, he's grown very serious of late and tells you repeatedly that there's going to be another big European war shortly. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, let us hope. His gloomy forebodings are doomed to disappointment. Surely, surely, at the end of this marvellous 19th century, when there are so many men in the world who've learnt the difficult lessons of life in a way that they've never learnt before, nations are no longer obliged to behave like children, or worse still, with their petty jealousies and bickerings and growlings, like dogs that delight to bark and bite. 
Oh, that's oh, a bit Gibbs dear. dead. Nineteen hundred, fourteen years later, all went all went into. Well, it's the middle of the Boer War when he died. But Tom Peregrine was on his finger was on some What's weird pole. It's called A Cotswold Village by J. Arthur Gibbs. I haven't read that before you ask. No. Well, how did you come to that? Well, I, this is my morning routine. I like to read books about country pursuits and nature and things that make me feel kind of warm and cuddly like you early in the morning i love to get mm. up and read early in the morning mm-hmm. and these are these are the these are the kind of things i i find them in second-hand bookshops andy it's an um, exclusive club of people who wrote books and then died before they were published. It, and one I can think of is Giuseppe de Lampedusa's uh, oh, yeah. The Leopard. Yeah, of course, yes, yeah, one yeah, of the yeah. great books. I always think it's so unfair. He didn't get any of that glory, oh, did he? Oh, Emily Dickinson just putting them all oh, in, a, in, a, in, a, yes. in, a, in a drawer. She never even that. sought publication there. So a that great favourite of mine. Have you ever heard of this? The Journal of a Disappointed Man. Oh, yes. By WNP Barbellion. That's a wonderful book. I haven't. It's oh. a basically a man feeling very sorry for himself in the early 20th century. Who um, he Basically what happens to him is he goes to the doctor to try and get out of being conscripted. And uh, the army doctor and his, his GP gives him a letter and says, oh, give this to the army doctor when you get there. So he trots along to the army doctor, hands the letter over. The army doctor reads the letter, doesn't tell him what's in it, and says, "Oh well, that's okay, Mister Barbellion. You can you can go home. No 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 need to fight in the First World War for you." <laughs> so on the omnibus on the way home, he opens up the letter to see what's in it, and it it says, "Mister um, Barbellion is suffering from the early stages of multiple sclerosis." Oh, oh God. God! So the second half of the book is about him coping with an actual thing he has to feel sorry for. And it is the most wonderful, funny, brave, humbling thing to read. Someone who has the kind of self-pity that presumably a lot of us have a 100 years ago, suddenly being given something to cope with and rising to the challenge. And um, I think I'm right in saying it was published... I don't think it was published after his death, but it was published when he was very near the end. So it's like Seasons in the Sun... <laughs> like seasons in the sun, we had joy, we had fun. Yes. Yeah, and I can hear, I can what? hear WMP Barbellion spinning in his grave, Matthew. <laughs> you know, you know what though? The king of the of the crap link. Uh, we had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun. Doesn't that remind you of I, JL Cars a month in the country? <laughs> it does. <laughs> Not quite perfect, uh, but um, that is the book Smooth. that we are talk- here to kind of talk about today on this podcast, mostly. OK, it's time now for an advert. I, um, about a year ago, uh, I had finished one of these long Russian novels, which is my delight and uh, duty to read. And I asked a few people on Twitter, right, I've just finished this book. I'd really like to read, so recommend me something, short, something that, uh, you know, that I can just connect with quickly and enjoy. And several people said, A Month in the Country by J.L. Carr. Since which time I've noticed it's a book that on Twitter people talk about a lot. It's the equivalent of Twitter word of mouth. And word of mouth, as we know, is always the thing that actually sells books. So it's like a sort of literary cat gif. 
Is that what you say? <laughs> <laughs> just comes yes, up again po- and again. A poignant cat gift. <laughs> um, and it's worked because it's been republished. Presumably that, that's yeah. the, the, the tail has wagged the dog on this occasion. Yes. And the reason yes. why we asked this is to come in and um, share this experience of talking about Month in the Country with us is partly because she, I believe, is one of the people who responded to me and said, have you ever read A Month in the Country by J.L. Carr? I think you'd love it. But also, Lissa, author of four novels for adults, two novels for children, your last couple of adults' novels, uh, Their Finest Hour and a Half and Crooked Heart, are both... um, They're funny. They're very touching. They evoke a time and a specific place, which is one of the things that um, A Month in the Country does. What are the challenges for somebody who wants to bring a time and a place to life in a novel? Uh, for me, it's it's being comfortable in the era. So you're not an observer, you're, you're an inhabitant of it. Otherwise, you don't want to be wandering around noting bakelite radios and... Uh, and, and, and spotting things which people living in the era wouldn't have bothered to spot because they were part of the era. You need to be totally comfortable in it. You need to be comfortable with the vocabulary, with what you would see, with the the way people's conversations mm. ran. And that, that for me, is how it works. It, it's doing so much research that, that you don't need to bother to do anymore because you understand how yeah. people thought then. So, so any plot you think of works because it's it's how things were. It's like an actor learning their lines to the point where they can forget their lines and yeah. just inhabit the... Yes, Part. yes, yeah. and I think that's true. That's for me, anyway. And is that one of the things that you think works about a month in the country? Yes, but then everything works about a month in the country. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it starts off, the, the first page is a, a, a man of 20 uh, called Tom Birkin in 1920 getting off a train in a Yorkshire village called Oxgodby. Actually, he's not 20, he's 23, isn't he? Um, a Yorkshire village called Oxgodby in the pouring rain. And it ends with him leaving the village of Oxcobby uh, around about two months later. It's never very clear. He he gets there in July. He leaves probably Slightly in September. Misleading title is yes. Probably. It's not a month in the country <laughs> at all. But then the month in the middle of it is the perfect month. Yeah. Um, Birkin is a veteran of the First World War, and he's there to do a job. A, a local benefactress has left money to the church, but. The church will only get the money if a wall painting she suspects is there. In fact, she knows it's there because she scraped off part of the um, the lime wash. If a wall painting is exposed and if the grave of her ancestor who died in the 15th century and was weirdly excommunicated, if the grave of the ancestor is searched for. So two experts have been brought into the village. There is Birkin, who is um, a a graduate of a, an art school, now specialising in, in exposing war paintings. And there is Moon, another World War I veteran, who is an archaeologist, and he's there to look for the grave. And over the course of the weeks they're there, a beautiful, beautiful summer in, in a beautiful part of Yorkshire, uh, Birkin, who arrives there with a twitch that he acquired at Passchendaele, who is... Um, really unhappy his wife has been has left him for another man but will probably bounce back he's in a very difficult relationship he's very twitchy literally twitchy Mm. and over the course of six weeks he finds his joy in life he he finds a serenity a, a pride in his workmanship he acquires a group of friends at he falls in love and then he leaves it all and gets on with his life again. Yes. And the thing is, this is a 
tiny book. Before we started this podcast, I said, does anybody know how long it is? And we all speculated, 40,000, 30,000. It's 20,000 words long, and it's got everything, oh, damn brilliant. it. Oh, I mean, the director actually did, got the, did the math. Yes. Thank it's, you, Lauren. That's right. It's not only got wonderful characterisation. I've, I've read longer proposals. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not only got wonderful characterisation, it's... The writing is beautiful. The nature writing is beautiful. It's also got something which isn't written about very often. It's it's the work of experts. It's a, a craftsman yes. doing something quite brilliantly and enjoying yeah. what he's doing. In fact, they're true craftsmen because Moon is exactly the same. It's got a slight mystery, a little bit of tension. It's solved at the end. It's sexy. It's a bit sexy. Yeah. It's very funny in parts. It's... It, shows the social structure brilliantly in the 20s. The work on the painting is like the rhythm of the The book, work on the painting the is marvellous. And in yeah. fact, I was going to read a little bit because yeah, yeah, what yeah. he's uncovering is he's uncovering a judge. He thinks it's going to be a judgment anyway because it's a painting that's on the arch of the church of the chancel. So it's a big triangular section of wall um, above, near the altar, above the altar. And he thinks that that's generally a judgment. And he's right. He gets up on the scaffolding and he, st- he starts lifting the paint. And he says, As the first tinges of garment appeared, that prince of blues, ultramarine, ground from lapis lazuli began to show. That really confirmed his class. He must have fiddled it from a monastic job. No village could, church could ever have run to such expense. But it was the head, the face, which set a, ste- a seal on his quality. For my money, the Italian masters could have learned a thing or two from that head. This was no catalogue Christ, insufferably ethereal. This was a wintry hardliner. Justice, yes, there would be justice, but not mercy. That was writ large on each feature, for when by the week's end I reached his raised right hand, it had not been made perfect. It was still pierced. This was the Oxford beef Christ, uncompromising, no more threatening. This is my hand. This is what you did to me. And for this, many shall suffer the torment, for thus it was with me. Moon saw this at once, hmm, he murmured. Wouldn't fancy being in the dock if he was the beak. And, and, and that, that, that's <laughs> it's, it's, what his writing is like. He, know, he, it, he, he, he pops a, in the lines, you know, doesn't he? I, I, I love this book when I wrote it. Yeah. Such a great recommendation from you and from other people. John, you hadn't read it before, had no, you? No, I mean, I I'd, I'd pretended to. I'd read it, obviously. Um, <laughs> we all do. Um, but I hadn't actually grappled with it. Um, there's that great line I always like to use of Column to Beans, which is, uh, uh, have you read it? Yeah, yes, but not personally. <laughs> um, so I had read it, but not personally. But now I've read it personally. I'm kind of evangelical about it because mm. it was... You know, there are those chicken soup books. You always think, I want to get ill so I can read P.G. Woodhouse and not have anybody bother me. Well, this is kind of if you wanted to give someone a book that made them, yes. that sort of restored their faith in storytelling, in in, in nature, in, in human, uh, beautifully observed. I mean, the book is, all the relationships are beautifully observed. But it's also, it's got a kind of a warmth and a kindness in it, which is quite rare in, in fiction. I keep having to pinch myself. It was written in 1980. It's not mm. like mm. written in, in, in 1920. Well, that's what I mean. He He's there. He, yeah. he, he's writing it as somebody looking back, but the the stuff set it, set in 1920 feels contemporary. I think one of the th- I agree with you, Lisa. One of the reasons for that is that although, as John says, it has it's very warm, it's not sentimental. This no. is one of the great things. One of the great things about Carr as a writer, I think. But one of the reasons why I think a month in the country works and people tell one another about it is because it doesn't it never feels soppy 
it, it, it's no. quite steely, yes. especially the last couple of pages, which we won't read out or talk about. No, because no, we don't yeah. want to give the end away. Mm. But you know, that's a that's mm. not merely a brave I thing think we for can the say character. There are no car chases uh, and, and, and <laughs> yeah. nobody dies. So but it, it's not just a brave thing for the character to do. It's yeah. an incredibly brave thing for J.L. Carr, the the author, to do. To yeah. leave the story where it is. Hmm. He uses a lovely phrase in the, in the intro, intro saying, uh, feeling a tug at the heart. And that's why it's just, I feel mm. all the way through that he, he's such a clever writer, he manages to do that. Damn, does he, does he use that phrase in the book? Yeah. Oh my God, I think I've used it in one of mine now. Really? I'm wondering. <laughs> <laughs> straight from there. Listen, Evans, a tug at the heart. Oh yeah, my it's, God. It's, but okay. also, it's worth saying that A Month in the Country was written towards the end of his, he was nearly 70 when he wrote this book. And his wife, had been diagnosed with cancer in 1968, I think I'm right in saying, and had lived, they had lived with her cancer for 12 or 13 years. And I think she had either died or they knew she was very near the end when he wrote this book, which he wrote over the course of a few months. And looking at it again this week with that knowledge, there is something very moving about the sense that someone who is trying to come to terms with Mm. a long period of suffering Mm. and saying goodbye to it in a way which will give him peace Mm. that seems i I mean i'm i make the autobiographical comparison because actually it's generally accepted that jl carl's work is extremely autobiographical even if you can't quite pin Specific characters yeah. on him. Yeah, he was always he was always m- moving stuff around. He said that what we said that novel writing can be a cold blooded business. So he sort of you know he, he used pretty much all the things that happened in his life right. in, 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 in his fiction, but he moved them around so uh, into d- different books. But I love him. He said something I think is one of the, the the most modest and brilliant things I've ever read read a novelist say. But really, all I've tried to do is tell a few people a story in the most appropriate way. It's just really and, and it is appropriate, yeah, even in terms of length. And thank God, his publisher, oh, actually, was, was it self-published? Wow. Ah, we'll get on to that. But thank, thank God a publisher didn't say to him, yes, it's awfully good, but it's very short. Can you, can you, can you sort of extend it a bit? Because, yeah. because it's short, but it's perfect. And frankly, it makes the rest of us hold up our hands in despair. Because if you can do all that in 20,000, why did the rest of us bother to write 80,000? It's the old line about, you know, I'm sorry I wrote you a long letter. I didn't have time to write you a short one. <laughs> <laughs> There's also the thing with, with this book, which is really fascinating, which I hadn't appreciated, was that Carr had been given the wardenship of a medieval church near Kettering in the mid-1960s, which he fought to stop being bulldozed by the local ecclesiastical authorities for 10 years. And you can read this book as a way of trying to say, you know, ultimately he didn't quite succeed, but in fiction he's able to keep Mm. the building standing forever. You know, that's one of the other beauties of it, I think. And he's very good within the book. He talks uh, a couple of times about the medieval mind. Of course, he, he's uncovering a medieval wall, wall painting. And he's wonderful about reaching back even further to the past and saying these people weren't like us. They lived in a different yeah. way. Mm. They thought in a different way. Their rhythms of life were different. And it's wonderful. It, yeah. It, God, he's so good. Yeah, no, it's really oh, great. No. I'm just thinking of little funny bits. There's the vicar is the very few bad characters in the book, you know, but the vicar is a bit of a... A, a, a co- he had a cold, cooped-up look, and it's in fact the vicar's wife, Mrs. Kitch, who he falls in love with. 
and it's very it's all very tense at the, the, particularly towards the end but the vicar he says the vicar describes him looking at him when he first meet him and he's remember he's completely soaked to the skin and he's standing in a cold church and the vicar's very very cross about the whole thing of the wall painting anyway he says indeed i looked to him like an unsuitable person likely to indulge in unnatural activities who against his advice had been unnecessarily hired to uncover a wall painting he didn't want to see and the sooner I got it done and buzzed off back to sin-stricken London the better (laughs) (laughs) but but, you know what he does do though which is something that George Eliot does is introduce an unlikable character and then tilt the prison so you see him in a different way and at the end the vicar reveals that he knows that, that Moon and Birkin have thought he was a fool and 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 Birkin feels very uncomfortable and he says because people one doesn't care for even dislike make most of us feel uneasy when they appeal against their sentence and that uncomfortable feeling yeah, when you yeah, condemn yeah. someone or have a laugh at their expense is so it's so tender uh, and so true and he, he does a lovely okay very now and then a great little bit of philosophy he says our jobs are private fantasies are our private fantasies our disguises the cloak we can cl- creep inside to hide, which is mm. pretty cool. So I would like to say a bit about J.L. Carr because I was really – I asked several of the people who recommended this book to me on Twitter, including a couple of writers. I said, well, I love this book. What other books by J.L. Carr would you recommend? And almost without exception, they said, oh, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't read any other books by J.L. Carr. So this week I read his last novel, which is called Harpole and Foxborough, General Publisher. He published it in 1992. He self-published it at the age of 80. <laughs> I, I bought a copy from him directly because he came into the shop in which I was working at that time. Said, hello. What, like a sack of books? Yeah. Said, hello, I'm, I'm J.L. Carr. Yes. Hello, I'm J.L. Carr. <laughs> I said, yes, I've just seen your book reviewed in the in the Sunday paper. He said, yes, I'm just down in London for the day. I'm taking a few copies round to Branches of Waterstones. So I bought a copy from J.L. Carr himself, which is signed. Here it is, signed by J.L. Carr. And um, it sat on my shelf for 23 years <laughs> until this Monday when I read it. And the thing which surprised me about it greatly was it is incredibly funny. Yeah. I, I was tweeting a few little bits of it this week, no, page to yeah, page. Yeah. Incredibly funny. And so I read a f- couple of other pieces by Carr, also very funny, none of them quite like one another. And it's rather changed how I feel about A Month in the Country. I think A Month in the Country, we're tempted to look at and think, as you suggest, it's a perfect book. It has a beginning, middle and end. It's slightly sealed off. Mm-hmm. And yet, the more I read about car and by car the more that you can see it's a another bulletin from the place that he occupies and the place that he works in you know i think a lot of novelists do that thing which is absolutely fine where they will tell eight stories in the same way yes that's very true jl car tells one story in eight different ways in eight different novels I think that's, and, that's exactly right. And the more of him I read, the deeper my appreciation for A Month in the Country gets because I realise he's choosing to write in that way. You know, he has all these different registers available to him that you see in his other books and he chooses not to use any of them but just this one for this book. Oh. That's real yes, writing. Yes, you yes, know, that's, yes. that's real strength of purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also looked at... I uh, read the uh, his... 
how steeple sin, sin to be wanderers. I did read that. One, yeah. one the FA Cup. It's, it's not really in the same league. It's, as, it's as light, Rutherford, isn't but it? It's, it's quite yeah. good fun. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. about a, a non-league team winning the FA Cup, and he he writes. Obviously, he was he played non-league football, but I I also discovered this this hinterland that, of his that. Very, you know, with my QI hat on, he did all these amazing maps with incredible drawings and facts and strange bits and pieces of history, and a, se- a whole series of reference books: Carr's dictionaries, Carr's dictionaries of extraordinary English cricketers, mm. his dictionary of English queens, kings' wives, paramours, celebrated handfast spouses, and royal changelings. So, a handfast spouse was actually a prostitute, really, I think, or a co- certainly a, a quarters a com- concubine. But uh, when somebody said, why did you not call them concubines? You might have sold a few more copies. And he said, I cherish my father's memory. His, his, <laughs> his father was a stern Methodist, as, and that, which comes, right, out comes out in the... In, in the He's uh, very good on Methodists. Yes. The there's, a, there's a brilliant line, and there's a fantastic biography of Carr called The Last Englishman by Byron Rogers. And the last line of the book is uh, fantastic. I thought it tells you everything you need to know about J.L. Carr. It's Jim Carr died on the 26th of February 1994 and the last day of his life was the only one in which he had not been fully conscious. Oh, that's very good, isn't that's it? Brilliant. That is uh, very good. And yeah. what, what we perhaps don't know about J.L. Carr is that he had lived a full life of experiences, including being a headmaster for 16 years, before he, he, he resigned at about the age of... 4647 to as John suggests publish little books and draw maps <laughs> and then as a result of being a, a publisher that's the thing that drove him into writing his own books so his first novel is published when he's 50 fantastic <laughs> he's 50 and he starts writing a series of novels, each of which is different to the previous yeah, so one. It's amazing. And he, he actually he kind of made it work. I think they had his, his, he and his wife had a chunk of money that they very nearly exhausted. But That's they, right. But the business to, did start to sort of work. But I love the, this little thing he says about books, which I think is from Harpole and Foxborough. But he says, books concern printers, publishers, sales reps, booksellers, proofreaders, professors, illustrators, indexers, critics, text editors, literary editors, librarians, book reviewers, bookbinders, bookkeepers, translators, typographers, Oxfam fundraisers, whole university departments of soothsayers, manufacturers of thread and glue, auctioneers, lumberjacks, starving mice, wolves howling at the doors of authors of first novels, the post office's book bashing machine minder, religious bonfire fuel suppliers and libel lawyers. And that this army is billeted upon one man or one woman gnawing a pen is neither here nor there. <laughs> That's just brilliant. He also has these in his, in his own editions of his books published by his publisher, the Quince Tree Press. He has this legend at the beginning, which is brilliant. This is a printing office, crossroads of civilization, refuge of all the arts against the ravages of time. From this place, words may fly abroad, not to perish as waves of sound, but fixed in time, not corrupted by the hurrying hand, but verified in proof. Friend, you are on safe ground. This is a printing office. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I looked at it from a slightly different perspective. I was looking at it to begin with when you is said... Is this your tenuous link time? This is a tenuous link time. So I, um, I, I was looking at it from a different perspective. It was, uh, I looked at, you know, we're going to do this book this week. And I looked at his other books. And the first thing I noticed was that originally they were all published by different publishers. Now, what does that tell you about a man? Yeah. Well... 
<laughs> in my experience, it tells me he perhaps was um, a bit of a handful. Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, that's normally the case, isn't it? So I thought, well, if I'm going to do a tenuous link, maybe I'll try and make this one actually a little less tenuous. Maybe I could find the person that commissioned um, or that was the editor for a month in the country. Um, and because of the wonders of the internet, I was able to do that. The thing that really kicked this off was discovering that the first edition of a month in the country was published by a company called the Harvester Press. Ah, yes, the Harvester Press. And I knew um, about well. the Harvester Press because um, I grew up in a very, very boring village in Sussex that bizarrely was actually the home of the Harvester Press. has two literary claims to fame. The Harvester Press were based there, and Patrick Hamilton lived there for four oh. days. He did. <laughs> yeah. he did. Just, what, what is the name of this extraordinary literary shrine? Uh, it's, a, it's a literary shrine called Hassocks. Excellent. Uh, which, and Hassocks, which means... Uh, this and Neela, right? Yeah, Neela, that actually yeah. put those mention of the word Hassocks in the mountain of the country. At least twice. That is, At least that twice, is a exactly. That's a tenuous connection. I got in touch with a guy that ran Harvester Press... And I spoke to him on the phone this afternoon. I said, how did you come about to end up with this book? So it's, a, it's a strange book for them because they were an academic publisher. And he said, well, I had a, we had a little fiction list. And I read a piece in the bookseller that Carr had written, which was complaining about publishers, saying they were all crooks, and saying they never paid any money for their authors. And if he worked out the amount of time that he'd spent writing over the last few years, his hourly rate would have been um, you know, less than a shilling. So John Spears wrote to him after seeing this piece in the book and said, oh, I thought that was really interesting. We're not crooks. Have you got anything we can publish? And a couple of days later, through the post, came a jiffy bag with the manuscript for a month oh, in the country. Yeah, that's oh, an amazing story. No, there was no letter in there. That's the only one as well. I get very twitchy about manuscripts well, in the past. Yeah. I think <laughs> yes, it might have been yes. because... Um, so John Spears puts it on his pile of manuscripts to read at some point. Doesn't kind of get round to it. And a week later, there's a postcard from, from Carr. And it says, you've had the manuscript a week. Can you send it back now? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so he rang him up. Sounds brilliant. He, he rang him up and said... I'm really sorry I haven't read it yet, but I'll read it in the next couple of days and uh, and then I'll let you know and I'll send it back. And uh, and Carl said, no, you need to get back to me tomorrow. Mm, so luckily it was only 20,000 words. We read it overnight, loved it and made him an offer, at which point Carl said, oh, since we last spoke, I've got an agent. So you can't deal with me anymore. You need to deal with my agent at AP Watt. Now, luckily Spears knew the agent at AP Watt, so he rang her up and did a deal with her. <laughs> he did a deal with her. <laughs> Played £1,000, I think, for it. Yeah, and then uh, he gets another phone call from Carl who says, whatever you do, don't give any money to that bastard at AP1. <laughs> 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 <I sacked him>. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Spears, so Spears so, says, OK, I'm sorry, but I've already done the contract. We've got to do the book with her. And their relationship kind of carried on in that way. He was apparently very irascible was the word that John Spears described him. Well, I was, I was fascinated too. A month in the country was put into paperback by Penguin. Penguin and Carl's editor at Penguin was the now retired Tony Lacey, who was the editor of my first book, Tilting at Windmills. And I available from all good books. I, I yeah, all good actually no, no, it isn't. Um, um, but given that a month in the country won the Guardian. Fiction Prize and, and was shortlisted for the book. Shortlisted for the book. Okay, shortest ever shortlist. Tony didn't take up the option for the following book, which is called <gasps> The Battle of Pollock's Crossing. And 
I am. He must be really I, I, I don't have confirmation of this, but yeah. Wow. I think the reason yeah. why he's published by even a publisher who would wish to hang on to it. And it's worth saying the Battle of Pollock's Crossing also shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Yeah, amazing. So Spears, Spears the, the guy from, um, uh, from Harvester Press, he said that there was one man who championed the book and it was this person championing the book that really um, got the ball rolling and started it selling copies. Can you guess who it was? Give us a clue. Is it what? what so he was one of the Booker judges, and he wrote also about rural life and about villages. Was it Jack Hargreaves? <laughs> it was not Jack uh, Hargreaves. Uh, Ronald Blythe? It was. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Ronald Blythe. Get it was him. Ronald Blythe, who was yeah, the first big sense. champion for the Eight book months. and really set it on its way. The Harpole Report was championed by Frank Muir. <laughs> was it really? It really was. Right. You know, Frank, it was his book of the year. It was Frank Muir's book of the yeah, year. It was right. JLK's big break. Yeah, yeah. And also, apparently, so it was Peter Mayer at Penguin who who picked the book up, um, and he was trying to get the paperback rights for everything on the Booker shortlist that year. Um, and he picked them all up except for the one that won. Which <sighs> was what? I think it was William... Golding. It was William Golding. William Golding, yeah. William Golding, yeah. Oh, it was uh, um, Darkness Visible, wasn't it, that year, was it? Yeah, I think... <laughs> Cool. <laughs> sure. Can I read one just last little bit? Because yeah, yeah. just I was trying to think of something that sums up because Birkin has been working on this painting for a couple of months and he's leaving. So I turned and climbed the ladder for a last look. And standing before the great spread of colour, I felt the old t- old tingling excitement and assurance that the time would come when some stranger would stand there too and understand. I just mm. love that. It's mm. just that That's he's great. done his work. That's what you were saying, Lisa, about craftsmanship. Yeah. He's done his work. Yes. He looks, gives it a last look and thinks, somebody is going to be like me and will come and un- understand what, what, what's happened here. And I know that just seems to be sort of what all, all artists do, all writers do in a way. Mm. Mm. Leave stuff for other people to discover. And I think the work of JL Carr, we've had a fun week. Mm, exploring it is um, everybody should uh, should dig in. There's, there is literally something for everyone, I think, with Jericho. Mm, mm. Okay, um, I think that's it for this week. Um, thank you all very much for listening. Thank you. Uh, we'll be back in a fortnight's time to be discussing um, something else along the lines of uh, what, Andy? <laughs> books, uh, bookshops, uh, more books, more uh, books. authors. Uh, life and fate. We'll uh, <laughs> be discussing large, life and fate. Large, thick Russian novels yeah, or small yeah, yeah. books with not very many words in, like uh, like JL Carr. And I guess you can also follow us, Andy, can't you? Yes, um, you can follow us uh, on Facebook, uh, Backlisted Podcast, or you can follow us on Twister. On twi- Twister? <laughs> Twister! <laughs> all come round here for Twister. Um, Lit Twister. You can, you can follow us on Twitter at Backlisted Pod. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.